Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is God's word. Amen. Got quiet in here after reading that scripture, huh? My name is Jeff Skipper. I'm the church planning apprentice at Redeemer, and naturally, right, I'm preaching on hating your mother on Mother's Day. Uh, Anybody want that task? No. All right. I jokingly say that. Drew, he draws up the preaching schedule months in advance, and so somehow uh, it ended up on this date, and uh, somehow he asked me to preach it. Um, But I believe in the sovereignty of God that I'm supposed to be preaching it this morning, so I won't be angry at him. Um, But it is a hard text, and so we'll get to discuss it. Um, I do want to explain to you who I am. Um, I'm the church planning apprentice here. As I said, we're in the process of planning to go and launch a new congregation of Redeemer in the southwest part of our city. And so if you didn't know that and you live there, I would love to talk to you, for you to come join us. If If you don't live there, you can still join us. You can pray for us. You can give to the work. And just really, I I just want to thank you for your constant encouragement and your faithfulness and your investment in this work. Whether you're going or not, it means so much to us. It is such an encouragement because God is providing in awesome ways and um, he'll continue to shape that work according to his will. And it's a fun ride to be on because it continually takes turns that you don't expect. And uh, really, all of life is like that with Jesus, right? If we give him the controls over our lives. It'll take different turns. And Luke's been trying to push that to us throughout this gospel. He's been calling us to follow Jesus at any cost, but the reality is not everyone who looks to be following Jesus have left their old lives yet. They're they're yet to give him control over their lives. right? It's like they have one foot in and one foot out. They haven't put him first. They're trying to preserve themselves and hold on to comfort and ease and yet still follow him. Right, so they want Christ, but not a cross or change. They want a savior, but not suffering. Right, they they want rest and relief, but but not rejection. Right, they want to be thought of by the world as friendly, but but not as fools. Right, they're allergic to anything hard and costly. And I would just say that's hard stuff. Right, anybody agree? I mean, that's convicting to me. That's not what I really get excited about. But Jesus notices this about this crowd, and he goes after it, and he he says, you know, you can't do that. If you want me, you have to take all of me, not just the parts you like, right? We can't just put Jesus in the mother-in-law suite out back and holler at him when we want advice, 
He says, you can't have me that way. Christianity doesn't work that way. I have to be at the center. I have to be first in your life if you want to be my disciple. And so he calls us to some hard stuff here. Thankfully, he's gentle and patient with us. Amen? And he doesn't call us to do anything that he hasn't done for us already. Amen? That's good news. And so in this text, Jesus reaches a point where he turns around and he looks to the crowds. That's following him is how this text started. And essentially, he says to them, hey, listen, before you go any further with me, is this for you? Right? Have you really understood what it means to follow me? Or have you just kind of like added me on to your life? Because he realized that many people were caught up in a superficial enthusiasm and excitement. They were following him for various reasons, but they didn't want to give him their entire lives. And so he, he has to address that. Before they go any further, he has to address that, and he gives a sobering word on what it means to follow him. And to sum it up, he just says, it's costly. It's costly if you're going to keep going with me. Right? And he wants them to realize this for a couple reasons. So that one, later, they're not surprised at the hardships that he takes them to in life. But they're not surprised by that. And secondly, so they don't look back later and realize the tragic reality that they were following him, but they were never really his disciples. It's costly. If the Christian life is as costly as Jesus says it is, immediately I have to turn around and ask myself, is the Christian life just really easy for me? Is the Christian life easy for us? Is it a stroll in the park, right? We're not struggling with anything because since we hitched our wagon to Jesus, the reality is it hadn't cost us anything. It's not currently changing anything in our lives. It's not challenging the way we think and live. It's not causing us to rearrange anything in our life all as well, right? Life's the same as as it's ever been. Before coming to Jesus, after coming to Jesus, they look the same. If that's the case, Jesus lovingly says to us, step back, sit down, reevaluate. Because it sounds like you've added me onto your life, like like an app on your phone or some sort of insurance policy, but you haven't made me your Lord, which therefore would mean you're not really my disciple. Do you hear that? That's what he's warning the crowd of here. There's a great call and a great cost to being a disciple of Jesus. So it's almost as if he says, you know, if if your main goal in life is to live a life of comfort and self-indulgence with as few ripples in your life as possible, then don't come to me. Because life will get more difficult in many ways if you follow me because I intend to come in and take over. Because I have an agenda for your life. You'll lose control, and that's scary. You'll have to learn to trust me. I intend to affect every area of your life, and it'll cost you everything, but it's the only way you'll find true life. Because it's the only worthy, lasting thing. It's the only venture worth going all in for. Right? Everything else will fade like a flower of the field, but if you follow me, if you endure the cost, you won't waste your life. And I'll make you into something more beautiful than you can imagine. But if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. It's a great call and a great cost to discipleship. It's hard. It's sobering. But we have to look at this. Now, in the New Testament, the word disciple occurs over 260 times. The word Christian occurs three times. I don't know if we would have guessed that. And the word Christian was introduced specifically, precisely, to refer to disciples of Jesus. And so... We're called to be disciples of Jesus. One late Christian author, Dallas Willard, he wrote in his book, The Great Omission, he said, the disciple of Jesus isn't the deluxe or heavy-duty model of the Christian, right? The disciple's not like the pro-Christians. 
They're not the second tier Christians, but he says that's the first level of basic transformation in the kingdom of God that, that we're called to. It's, it's what we're called to. We're called to discipleship. And a disciple, that word means to be a learner, a student, or an apprentice, right? And in, in old days, uh, people would sit at the feet of a rabbi, and they would learn from them and follow their ways and become like them. And so to be, to be a disciple of Jesus means to believe in him and enter into a lifelong apprenticeship with him, right? It's to enter into the school of Jesus, where we're constantly learning his ways, how to apply the gospel to our lives, right? And the principles of what it means to walk in the kingdom of God to every aspect of our lives. But Willard goes on to say this. He says, but the governing assumption today among professing Christians is that we can be Christians forever and never become disciples. You see, there's a tendency to and a danger in driving a wedge between the two things when they're one and the same. We're called to be disciples. And so Jesus, right? This is his living word. He turns to us today, the crowd, and he says, are you following me as a disciple, or are you just one in the crowd? I have to say, yes, salvation is by grace, absolutely, by faith alone, absolutely, but it never comes apart from progressively giving Jesus your entire life. And so what does it cost you to follow me, Jesus says? What is it costing you right now to follow me? Right? Who or what is first in your life? Who gets the best of you? What are you aiming at? Right? Because that will dictate everything else in your life. And we could even ask ourselves, what are we struggling to leave behind? What have we not left behind yet? What are the barriers in our lives that need to be removed to follow Jesus more faithfully? Right? And what are the things in our lives that need to be reordered because he's coming in to be sinner? And finally, we have to ask, is he worth doing all this for? Can I trust him enough to give him my life in that way? And so this is a time for examination, right? Not to trip us up. Right, But in order for us to examine ourselves in the faith, something we should continually be doing, so that one, we can know him more, and secondly, redirect our lives to the, thing, the only thing that's going to last. Again, this is a hard text. So again, I just want to say, from the beginning, a life of obedience, right? Uh, a, a life with a flavor, a radical flavor of following Jesus is empowered by, is founded upon the free grace of God alone for salvation. Right? God gives us a new heart, by faith, in Jesus Christ, to follow him in the way that he calls us to. So, following him in this way is not to earn his favor, but it's a picture of a life that's so floored by the grace that he's already given us freely, and a life that longs to know him more, that it will leave absolutely everything to know him and follow him. So after that long introduction, right, I got one point in just in the intro, I just have two points. So, it's the cost of discipleship, and he is worth it. And so the cost of discipleship, if you'll follow along in your worship folder, in this passage, Jesus is calling for ultimate allegiance from his followers. He don't want anything anything to compete with him in our lives, and so he gives examples of things that often do compete with him in our lives, that inevitably will compete with him in our lives, and we could put them into two categories, right? We could call them traditional idols and contemporary idols, and he says that those things have to go, and he has to take priority over those things if we want to be his disciples, And so first, he goes after the traditional idols of family, approval, and security. Look in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. And so we learn a couple things here. First, Jesus has a greater claim on us than our own family has on us. Jesus has a greater claim on us than our own family has on us. Now this goes right in the face of strong 
Eastern values, and even, I would say, some uh, Southern, Western values where family becomes a God. Like, whatever you do, don't rock the boat in the family. Right? Can anybody relate to that? And Jesus is saying, he's using hyperbole here, he's using really strong language to make this point, and so we address that word hate. Matthew, in his text, says, you've got to love less, right? Love less, and good biblical interpretation compares Scripture with Scripture. So what else does the Bible say about um, family relations and how we should treat our family and so on? One, right, honor your father and mother. We know that. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, you better provide for your own family. We know that. Um, Romans 1 says some of those who won't enter the kingdom of God are disobedient to their parents. So there you go, parents. Use that one, Romans 1. Um, uh, So I'm just stacking up here what this really means. Thirdly, we should love our neighbors. So this doesn't mean we should disobey or be evil towards our parents or loved ones. Right, kids? So that's cleared up. You can't blame me or Jesus. That's not what this means. Okay? That's clear. Uh, Jesus is saying all other loves in our lives should pale in comparison to our love for him. That's what he's saying. Uh, John Bunyan wrote a famous book called The Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory. And the main character in this story, his name is Christian. And Christian, at the beginning of the book, is called to follow the Lord. The Lord tells him, go through the yonder wicket gate. This is written in like the 16th or 17th century. Go through the yonder wicket gate uh, towards that shining light. It's a call to follow him, to be his disciple at any cost. And it says his family immediately met this with a negative reaction. They didn't like it. They scoffed at him. They ridiculed him. And it says that Bunyan, the Christian, as he went to follow, his, follow the Lord's call, to follow him, his family cried out, come back, come back. And it says that Christian put his fingers in his ears and he ran on yelling, life, life, eternal life, and he never turned back. So to us, I just ask, metaphorically, have we left our family to follow Jesus? Right, in many cases in the world, this is very literal, especially in other countries where you're just cut off or ostracized for making a decision to become a Christian? Have we left? Right? Our family's expectations of us, their desire to sometimes control our lives by telling us what's best for us can be a barrier to following Christ. That's what Jesus says. And Jesus says that our allegiance has to be to him. That has to come first. Not to cut off our family or stop loving them, but we have to draw a line in the sand that says, my first allegiance is to him. And what makes this an idol is, is the desire for my family's approval of me uh, more than following Jesus' call on my life. And so this makes us ask, right, everybody, who has the greatest claim on you? Who has the loudest voice in your life? Right? Is it your parents? This goes for adults, too. Is it your parents, your siblings, right, your, your children? Is your life dictated by their demands on you and your life just is lived based on trying to appease them and gain their approval and not rock the boat at the expense of following what Jesus calls you to do? Or does he have the loudest voice in your life? He has the greatest claim on you. When my family's expectations and opinions on how my life should go and what decisions I should make clash with what Jesus calls me to, Jesus wins every time. What's the cost, right? This will lead to rejection and suffering and pain. Who wants that in their relationships? We love our families. We long for them to get us and affirm us in life. But Jesus says that has to die in the light of his call to follow him if that clashes with what he calls us to. Jesus has a greater claim on us than our own family has on us. And to flip that around, Jesus has a greater claim on our own family than we have on them. 
my love for my family might keep them from what God may be calling them to. My love for my kids may lead to an overprotectiveness of them to the point where I'm getting in the way of what God's call is on their lives. Right? Selfishly and fearfully, I will insert myself and discourage them from taking up what God may be calling them to because I don't want to see them harmed or at risk. But Jesus says, no. Right? My voice is even louder than yours, even over the lives of your own children. So moms and dads, right? Who has the loudest voice in the lives of our children? Is it your voice and your dreams for them, or is it what Jesus calls us to? Hopefully those two things overlap. Are we sowing our word in them or his word in them? Who are we pointing them to? So convicting, so hard, right? I'm not alone, right? Lord, help us do that, to point our children towards Jesus, not towards what I want for them, because I'm off, right? So Jesus goes after traditional idols of family, approval, and security. He says, those things got to go if they get in the way of of me. And that convicts me because I'm a people pleaser. So that's where he gets me at a lot. But then he flips it and he also goes after contemporary idols of pleasure and control. Right? Western individualism, modern Western individualism doesn't struggle with that. Right? If you fall in in, in that category, you're like, I'm not worried about what my family thinks. I'm going to do me. Right? I'm not care if they approve of me or authority or teachers. I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and that's that, because I'm going to control my life. I'm going to make the decision for my life. And Jesus says, no, not that either. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. He's hitting us all over the place, right? Verse 26, he says, you have to hate your own life. Right? Verse 27, he says, you've got to carry your own cross. Other places, he says, you've got to die. You've got to lose your life. That, that word life there is psyche, which means self. It's not the word bios for physical life. It means yourself. Jesus says that he has to come before our own selfish ambitions and our own personal agenda. That's the idol of control. He says, I come before that. He comes in. He sets the agenda for our lives. Right? Our ambition is now to be for him and his kingdom, not our own kingdoms. Our own personal kingdoms have to be destroyed. And then in verse 33, he says we have to renounce all to be his disciple. And this is the idol of pleasure. Like It it, it includes possessions and material things and the world itself. There has to be an inner detachment to everything else, right? So he hits those idols of family approval and security. He hits those idols of contemporary individualism and, and pleasure and control. And he says none of those things can provide you with what I can provide you with. And because of that, those things have to go. So in all of this, to sum up what he's saying, in all that, you can't be my disciple. Here's the cost. He says, he trumps everything, and he has to be in the center of our lives, not an add-on to what we already got going on. And there will be costs in that. I have three sons. Two of them are about three feet tall. And they mean that they are going to get between me and everything else. Me and the lawnmower, me and the bathroom, me and the fridge, me and the couch. It doesn't matter. They, they're just right here, me and my wife. Amen? right? They're going to get right in the middle. And Jesus says, I'm coming to be like that in your life. I'm coming to get between you and everything else. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, wrote a famous book called The Cost of Discipleship, a man who knows about the cost of discipleship as it cost him his own life. But in that book, he said this on this passage. He said, now we learn that in the most intimate relationships in life, in our kinship between father and mother, brothers and sisters, in married love, in our duty to the community, direct relationships are impossible. Why? Because between father and son, husband and wife, 
the individual and the nation, stands Christ the mediator. And wherever any group prevents us from standing alone before him, and where any group calls for immediacy before him, they must be hated for the sake of Christ. He stands between us and everything else. Now, everything in my life passes through him first. My life decisions, my parenting, my marriage, my relationship to you, my work, my financial decisions, all have to first pass through him. Which means we have to give ourselves to him in a way that allows ourselves to be taken over by him. You see, everything else has to be put to one side, right? Don't mistake Jesus' humility and his gentleness for shyness, right? Don't picture the, the Jesus in the picture holding the lamb with the flowing hair. Picture a lion. He's coming in. We've quoted this many times. C.S. Lewis famously said this, and I'll try to paraphrase as much as I can. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, you know what he's going to do, right? I mean, he's going to fix things up like an interior decorator or a, or a handyman. He's going to fix the drains. He's going to stop the leaks in the roof. You know he's coming in to do those things that you already know about yourself, those things that need to be done. But then he starts knocking the house around in ways that you don't understand, and it really hurts. And it doesn't make sense anymore. What, what is he doing? The explanation is he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's adding on a new room over here. He's putting on an extra floor, running up towers, putting in a new courtyard because you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace because he intends to come and live in it himself. How do you picture Jesus? Like a handyman to fix her upper? Or he's coming in with like hammers and drywall and right all that stuff. That's what he's coming to do. And since he's coming to sit on the throne of our life as our king and our lord, That means any barriers to him have to be removed and life has to be reordered. Dallas Willard, he says, I like this, I think I put it in the worship folder, he says that a disciple systematically and progressively rearranges his affairs in order to become like Christ. A a disciple systematically, right, and and progressively rearranges his affairs in order to become like Christ. We We rearrange our affairs all the time to do things, right? To save money, to go on vacation, amen? We rearrange things in order to do that stuff, to spend time with our loved ones, because we think it's worth it. And Jesus says, everything has to be arranged now, rearranged around me. And so we just ask ourselves now, where are we strategically counting the cost in our lives and rearranging our lives in order to follow Jesus more faithfully? I'm going to say that again, because I think that's a really good question. Right? Where are we strategically sitting down, counting the cost, and rearranging our life in order to follow him more faithfully? Because that's what a disciple does. The call to discipleship calls for a drastic reorientation at the foundation of our lives and in the practical things of our lives so that we would be aimed at Jesus more and at his kingdom first. And in order to do that, we have to stop. And Jesus tells two parables about this. He says if a guy's going to sit down and build a tower, first he's going to sit down and count the cost so he don't get halfway through the project and he ends up running out of funds and it just sits there halfway built forever where everybody will come and mock at it for the rest as long as it, as long as it stands. Right? And in the second parable he says before a king goes out to war with 10,000 men, he should probably deliberate and decide whether he can afford to go against an army of 20,000 men. And the, and the meaning, the, the point in those parables is found in the words, sit down. Do you see that? Sit down. A deliberate decision is to be made in following Christ. 
Calculate the cost. Calculate what it will cost you. You don't just jump into big things in life, big decisions. You don't just jump into marriage without sitting down first, right? Hopefully, right? You don't, you don't just jump into to a, to a college without thinking about it, right? You don't just jump into an Ikea furniture project without sitting down first, because I have made some masterpieces like modern abstract art out of Ikea because I just jump right in. First of all, there's no words in them books. It's just pictures of like a stick figure putting it together. I've learned my lesson. Our, our, my, my TV stand continually reminds me. Count the cost, Jeff. Sit down. Why? Because you won't finish. You won't complete it. If you want to run the race well and endure, you have to count the cost and know what's involved and be intentional in approaching it, or you will never finish. And so for the non-Christian, at the beginning of the Christian life, we have to sit down. And Jesus says, sit down and count the cost before you jump into following me. And secondly, I would say, because the realization of learning what it means to follow him is a process, right? There has to be a continual counting the cost on our parts in order to die to ourselves to follow him. I will sit down and deliberate over much lesser things. Personal budgets, a home project, right? I'll spend 15 minutes trying to decide who to put at shortstop in our t-ball game that night. I'll sit down and think about that stuff and count the cost. And yet often I won't sit down and consider how my life can better reflect my following of Jesus. How I can be pointed at him more. And so... We just ask him some questions, right? Does he stand between us and everything else in our life? Is our heart and and, and the shape of our life being melted to take on the shape of his life? Do, Do the various areas of our lives reflect our own agenda or his agenda? And what have we not left yet? What have we not let go of? Do we sit down and say things like, okay, as a disciple of Jesus, how should I run my business? All right, what does this mean for my parenting? How should I be spending my money? What has he called me to? Where has he called me to live? Jesus cares about that? Yeah, I think he does. But self-preservation, right? The fear of, of giving up control and those idols we talked about of family approval and security and, 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 and um, selfish ambitions and the love of stuff will keep us from following him and knowing him, right? And, and entering a life of an abundant life of faith with him. That stuff gets in the way. But if we see him for who he is, his cross and his goodness will give everything to him. Nothing will be off limits, right? When we see his worth, we can't do life the same. We will be progressively swept into the new life that he calls us into, right? Do you have hold of Jesus and you manage him and you control him and you know, let him only go so far? Or does Jesus have control, hold of you? Who has control in your life? Because if he has control of you, he's going to probably make you a little bit uncomfortable. Because you automatically you lack control. There may be elements of unpredictability or insecurity in your life with Jesus. That's a life of faith. And ironically, Jesus says that's actually where the true security is. In life with him. But trying to follow him half-heartedly is unfulfilling. That's, that's, that's the hard thing to do. It's burdensome. Because it doesn't work that way. But if we count the cost and go all in, yes... It becomes hard, but it's liberating and reassuring. And and your life with Jesus will get real and intimate as we enter into that. Finally, in order to make that decision, right? In order to, to follow him at any cost, before knowing what he calls you to and how you apply it to your life, you have to know what he's done for you. Because this is hard stuff. 
Right? Giving up my children to release them to his will rather than my own. To intentionally leave my comfortable circumstances for seemingly uncomfortable, uncertain circumstances. To give away too much money. To, to give away a lot of grace and always absorb the cost. To suffer from making decisions based on what Jesus calls me to, rather than what my family expects of me, and suffering for that, that stuff is hard. So in order to go all in and live life with him, we have to answer the why, right? Why endure such costs? Why rearrange my life for him? Is he worth it, right? And if he is worth it, how can I find the power to endure life that way? And so my second point, he's worth it. Uh, I worked so hard in college to save up money to buy this guitar I'd always wanted. It was this custom acoustic guitar. had a beautiful, warm sound to it. and I, I really loved the shape of it. And, and finally, I bought it. And you didn't find me without it. It was my most prized possession. And just a few months later, the Lord would, in a funny way, put it on my heart to propose to Marissa. But in order to do that, I needed money, which I didn't have. You already know where this is going. Uh, and, and, and next to my truck, the most valuable thing I owned was this awesome guitar. And so I sold this guitar. And, and I bought this princess cut diamond ring, and I proposed to her to get, to get her. And at the time, I promise you, it felt like selling all that I had. Right? But she was worth it. Her worth to me justified the cost. And I never looked back at that beautiful, awesome guitar. I can hear it now. I never Google it and look at pictures of it or anything like that, right? (laughs) Never look back. Jesus said in Matthew 13, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, and he found that one pearl of great value, and he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Life with Jesus, walking in the kingdom of God, is like a treasure hidden in the field. It is the treasure in the field. He is the pearl of great, of great price. He's worth the cost of leaving everything to know him, to know him more, to follow him. And the good news is that the gospel gives us everything we need to endure all these costs I've been talking about. It gives us the reason to follow him and carry our cross. It gives us the power we need to live that way. And it even gives us a promise if we do live that way. So I want to look at those. First, the gospel is the reason to follow him and carry our cross. And I said this earlier, right? The wonder and beauty of Jesus, the type of king that he is, is that he doesn't call us to anything that he hasn't already experienced himself for us. I like a king like that. Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Philippians 2, he made himself nothing to the point where he laid down his life all in an act of grace for you. The reason to rearrange your life in order to put him first is because Jesus first rearranged his life in order to love you and save you when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and helpless and guilty and undeserving. He rearranged his life for the joy of bringing us to the Father, of glorifying his Father. He set everything to one side. Right? Eternal riches and glory and honor and even life to take on flesh and poverty and ridicule and death. You want to talk about cost. It's like he sat down. 
to see how specific he was. He intentionally and very specifically became born of a woman, born under the law, in the lowest of places, at just the right time. He lived the perfect life for you, right? He went and he died a cruel death that we deserved for us, the real cost. He knows about broken relationships. He left eternally, eternal perfect communion with the Father and the Spirit to come to earth to experience unfair, broken relationships of betrayal and even to be cut off from his Father on the cross. He knows what that's like. Right? He who had everything, through whom everything was made, who had absolutely nothing to gain, right? He renounced it all. Right? The word there actually means to say goodbye. He had nothing to gain. He renounced it all. That's what he did with all of his riches and glory. He considered himself nothing in order to come and do the work of salvation to bring you home. Do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Who, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might might become rich. Do you know that? Does that move you? Does that grab you? That's the reason to follow him. He's the only one who could do it and the one who did do it. And you see, he's good. That answers the question, why? What's the reason? He's good. You can trust him. That's the reason. And by faith in him, we are saved, right? Not by our works, but by his work. You say, that's great, Jeff. I I like that. But how can I enter into that type of life and endure such cause? And the gospel gives us the power as well. Because he, the very one who did that for us, gives us his spirit. Right? To not only compel us to enter into the type of life that he lived, but to also comfort us as we endure such cause. Paul would write to the Corinthians, he says, if you share in his afflictions, be sure you will share in his comfort too. Because the Spirit is with us. And so he gives us the grace and the perspective and the selflessness to endure by the Spirit that he gives us. You see, it's almost like Jesus doesn't say go as much as he says come on. Come on and join into my type of life. This is where abundant life is found. So the gospel gives us the reason to live that way, to take on that shape. It gives us the power, but it also gives us a promise. Right? He gave it all up so that we would be completely forgiven of our sins. Think about it. So we'd be seated in the heavenly places, so that we would be sealed with his spirit, so that our life would be hidden with God, so that we would have an, an inheritance in heaven that's undefiled and unfading, being kept for us, so that would be, we'd be clothed in righteousness, guaranteed a resurrection of life and glory. Those are absolute guarantees. Those are a done deal if your faith is in Jesus. Which means, if that's, that's sealed up, that's done, put that to one side. That means we can give up anything he calls us to. Suffer loss. Venture out in faith. Be rejected for the sake of following him out of the joy of the love he's lavished on us and the power he's given us. We can give all that up and in reality lose absolutely nothing. But actually even gain. That's the promise. Our call to worship says no one will give up anything. No one will leave anything that won't be paid back to them a hundredfold in this life and the next. (laughs) What if we really believe that? Did that connect, right? I asked my wife that the other night, and she was distracted, folding clothes. I don't know, Jeff. I I don't really know. What if we really believe that? Let's stop there for a minute. That whatever we give up, whatever cost we endure, whatever shape of life that looks like Jesus's life that we enter into, will be paid back a hundredfold in this life and the next. 
That'd be the most, the safest and best, most fruitful investment there is. That's the promise of the resurrection. That as we fall to the earth and die and absorb the cost of following him, it'll bear much fruit. He sees every hurt, right? He sees every sacrifice we make in following him. And as if he hasn't done enough already, he'll pay us back a hundred times over for doing that. And so in obedience to what he calls us to, right, knowing we can't lose but only gain because he's paid the true price for us, we can be reckless, bold, and generous in following Jesus because he's been reckless, bold, and generous in loving us in his love and his grace towards us. But until we see his worth and his beauty, we'll be half committed. Trying to hold him at arm's length and control him, we'll be enslaved to idols of self-preservation and comfort and ease and we'll be unfruitful in the kingdom. And and we won't even know him well because as we enter into those sufferings, we come to know him as we take on the shape of his life. And so the word would be, if this is the one sure thing, invest in his kingdom. Right? Hebrews says that everything else is going to be shaken. Any monuments, any personal kingdoms will be shaken away, but his kingdom will, will not be shaken away. So let's rearrange our lives and the lives of our children and our families around that one thing and be intentional about that. Right? Think about our legacy as a church. Will we endure those costs? Right? We're raised up together here in this moment for a season. Will we leave five new churches right, for the sake of his kingdom here and change the face of, of our city? Will we leave a mercy ministry that, that reaches into the dry bones of this area so that the power of Jesus and his spirit and his love would go into that brokenness and helplessness for years to come? Will we leave that? Will we count the cost and say, I want to get in on that and invest in that? Because that's what's going to last. So that our Father would say, well done. Right? Well done, good and faithful servant. You were, you were faithful in the little things. Right? So I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I want to just leave, leave you with three short application points. I promise I'm done. In order to be his disciple, in order to follow him faithfully, one, you have to be available. Right? You have to say no to some good things in order to prioritize him and his kingdom. Right? To follow him, you have to leave lesser things. Some things in our lives need to be reordered. Other things need to be completely removed and replaced with him and what he's doing. So you have to be available to your family and your community because following Jesus is done in community. And knowing him is found in community. You've got to be available. Secondly, you have to be teachable. That's what discipleship is. We have to forget what we think we know about life and what is really worth it in life. Our worth meter is totally off and needs to be recalibrated. Right? Learn from him what we should be investing our lives in. So be humble. Be teachable. Be available. Be teachable. And finally, we have to get up and move out. Right? That's what he calls us to. Come on. So, I mean, some of us, we've counted the cost. Right? It's not a lack of counting the cost. We know the deal, but we've been sitting and counting for a really long time. So it's time to make a decision. It's time to get up and go. Right? We have to move out, engage in these various areas of our lives. It may mean leaving comfort and, and predictability, leaving the approval of others. Right? To be thought a fool for the sake of Jesus, following him. Right? Risk it. We can't lose anything. It'll be hard. It'll be a mess. But that's where Jesus leads us to in a life of faith. And so we can go and we can spend it all for him because he's already spent it all for us. Right? All things are ours. So 
whatever we lose along this journey following him, it'll come back to us a hundredfold. So let's stir one another up as we enter into that life, as we seek his kingdom, that his will would be done in our lives and in our city as it is in heaven. Will you pray with me? Father, um, we thank you for your love towards us, and I just have to confess, um, you, Jesus says some really hard things, God. Um, it's easy for us to, to read over them, Father. I have so many idols of approval in my life. I have so many idols of control and, and, and pleasure in my life that I'm unwilling to give up because the bottom line is I, I, uh, I, I don't believe. And so, God, I just cry out, help our unbelief. Um, give us uh, the courage and the boldness to endure the cost um, that you call us to as we're so fixed on Jesus, God, um, and the cross he carried for us and the, and the real cost that, that he paid, the price he paid for us, that our crosses would seem light and trivial uh, as we enter into life with him. God, help us to understand what this means, what this should mean for our lives. Help us to be intentional about sitting down and counting the cost, God. Give us wisdom and clarity and boldness and courage and be near, Father. You say that we'll find fellowship with you as we enter, as we share in your sufferings, so that we might know the power of your resurrection. I want that in my life, God. And I pray that for us. Uh, and so do that work. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, one of my old seminary professors used to say, God loves to pour out his blessing on those who dare to radically align their life purposes with his. Right? But in order to do that, we have to see he is worth it and he's beautiful. Did you catch that in the assurance of pardon where Paul said, everything I thought life was about, everything that I thought was worth investing my life in, I count it as absolutely nothing. The word rubbish means like I count it as garbage in compared to knowing him. We have to see he's beautiful and we need one another. Right? Go, come disaster, scorn nor pain. I mean, I, I kind of want to do that, but I need to do it with you guys. Like I'm going to lock arms with you and do that. And so can we go do that together as we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? Know that he goes with us. He says, come on, let's go. And so this benediction is the promise that he is with us as we go. So receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in God's peace.